love to train new writers. I love to teach, educate, and help them move towards publication. That's why I created Write That Book, but I have something else that's super exciting. If you are interested in being in a subscription group and having all that interaction, having to be on Facebook all the time, I created a video vault with dozens and dozens of training videos that you can access for only $19 a month. Go to trishagoyer.teachable.com and look for the Write That Book video lessons. There's lessons from editors, agents, professional authors. You can go through them at your own pace and each of them is about an hour along. This is like a dozen writers conferences all in one place. Again, you can find out more information at trishagoyer.teachable.com. Okay, this might be the ultimate fangirls moment. Last year, when I saw Todd Tillman win The Voice, and I saw how amazing his wife, Brooke, was, and then all their kids, I knew their story would make a great book. The cool thing is, over the last year, I've got to work on the book with Todd and Brooke. It's called Every Little Win. Every Little Win is Todd and Brooke's story that really shares all the little things that led up to God using them in this big win of The Voice. And it's an amazing story, and they're going to tell you a little bit about it in their own words. Uh, in our book, Every Little Win, what I really hope you learn is that you don't have to have enough money. And maybe you think the opportune time has already passed, but it has not. You can still get that victory regardless of those things. Our book, Every Little Win, is about you may think that you've messed up too bad or you've gone too far for God to redeem it, but that's not true. We want to show you and empower you that with God, all your stories are redeemable. How fun is that? I'm so excited about that book. You can find out more information at everylittlewinbook.com. And if you haven't heard Todd sing, just go to YouTube, put in Todd Tillman, T-I-L-G-H-M-A-N. You are going to have a blast discovering this amazing artist. You're listening to Walk It Out with Trisha Goyer, where we discover what it looks like to follow God and be swept away on the journey of a lifetime. Author of over 70 books, mom of 10, yes, 10, homeschooler and speaker, Trisha Goyer will explore what radical obedience to God's word looks like. It's time to hear from God lovers who've dared to say yes. Listen in to heart to heart chats and learn how others overcame doubts and fears. Discover how God used ordinary people to impact others one step at a time. If you're ready to get radical, get going, and make a difference in this world, you're at the right place. Here's your host, prolific writer, world traveler, people lover, and mega nap taker, Trisha Goyer. Well, friends, I am so excited. Now, one of my favorite things is to get swept away in a novel. And I've been able to do that a lot recently. We're going to be talking about a novel that I'm currently reading called The Nature of Fragile Things. So let me tell you a little bit about our guest. Susan Meisner is a former managing editor of a weekly newspaper, award-winning columnist, 
She's an award-winning author of The Last Year of the War, As Bright as Heaven, A Bridge Across the Ocean, Secrets of a Charmed Life, which I say is one of my like top favorite novels, um, and so many more books. But we are going to be talking about this new book, The Nature of Fragile Things today. So welcome, Susan. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to be here, really. It is so fun connecting with you. And I know we've known each other for many years in the Christian uh, writing industry. And I know now, I mean, your books are just doing so well and reaching so many audiences. And I do have to say, I'm not done with this one yet, but The Secrets of a Charmed Life, I read it, I think it was the first novel I read this year, and I was so engrossed in it. I loved it. So I'm just Mm -hmm. a big fan all around. Thank you. That means a lot to me. Thank you. Yeah. So I know that, you know, people have been enjoying your novels and they see your books and it's so easy to get swept away. So they might think, well, she just has a knack. These books and stories just come so easy to her. So I would just love to hear, and I researched a little bit, so I know some of the story. I would just love to hear the background of the nature of fragile things. Yeah. You know, I think I thought at the beginning of this gig that the more you do it, the easier it gets. You know, like if you decide to be an Olympic swimmer and you first start out and you can't hardly swim a lap, well, the more you swim, the better you get at it. And, you know, pretty soon you're able to get gold medals if you've done it long enough. Well, writing books, it gets harder. It's the weirdest (laughs) thing. Because even though I feel like I'm probably a better writer than I was, you know, 10 years ago, but it doesn't get any easier. And I, I think it's because I raise the bar every time I finish a book, I want the next one to be even better. And then I start out with nothing. <laughs> when you write a novel, it's like, it's a whole lot of nothing, 400 pages of nothing. And then you have to fill those pages with story. And I, I feel like it's, and I, I should, I should kind of keep that in the back of my mind. Now, when I start a new book, <laughs> that if you're starting again to do something that's actually rather difficult it doesn't matter that this isn't your first rodeo. It's it's going to be hard, so buckle up. Because with this one, it's like my 21st book. And I just um, kind of lost my way in the beginning with it. And uh, I didn't even know that I was lost because I knew I had this great backdrop, you know, the 1906 San Francisco earthquake where it feels like the very world beneath your feet is crumbling. And I thought I can use that imagery all day long. Yeah. And so I thought I had a good backdrop with a lot of tension, both organic. And then I was going to create some for characters, of course. And um, I wrote 25,000, 30,000 words and it was the second book in a contract. And so I had to send those to my editor because this particular book was bought without a title, without any kind of premise or anything. And she had to tell me that it wasn't working. Mm. And um, she was right on all counts. You know, she told me these characters, I don't, I don't, I'm not, I'm not dialed into what they want. I'm not even sure what they want. And it's not going to work for 400 pages. And um, you're not going to get reader buy-in with these characters. And um, once I got over the shock of realizing that she was right, and I knew I had to start over, like all over with different characters even. So I I did. It took me a while to kind of regroup in my head. And I came up with the characters that you're reading about now in this book. So it's the same characters, but I was treating them all differently. And I was giving everybody a voice. Everybody had a point of view. And um, I wrote 40,000 words, sent them to my editor. And again, she had to tell me the same kind of thing, that there was no emotional buy-in. And I don't believe the, I don't believe in what the characters want. And what do they even want? 
And so, you know, when that happened, it really took me to the mat because I did feel like I had lost my edge. And what finally worked for me was just going back to the basics of storytelling. Mm -hmm. You know, what does the character want and why do they want it? And when I realized it was just Sophie's story to tell, when I wasn't having all these multiple points of view, then I finally, I finally had my hands around this story. And I'm really glad that my editor did that twice, sent me back to the drawing board twice. Um, she didn't tell me how to fix it. She just said, you got to fix it. Um, yeah. I'm glad she did because what, I, what I've what i got now with this book, I'm really happy with. And I think mm -hmm. the critics are liking it. You know, it, it, took, it picked up a starred review in Publishers Weekly, which is always great affirmation. So I feel like, um, you know, you're never, you're never, too, you've never arrived so far that you can't learn something new. And um, I, and I feel like it, uh, it's, it's always, it's always nice to be um, reminded that um, I, I'm still growing, you know, I'm still maturing mm -hmm. as a writer. And that's kind of nice too, that um, it's, it's, I've, I've not reached some pinnacle. I'm, I'm, st I'm like everybody else climbing up the hill and it, it's, <laughs> It was, it was kind of nice to realize that it actually took some of the pressure off. That is so good. And because now I love Sophie, like her voice is very clear, her desires and longings. And I know there's some mystery in there, even like at the beginning, like, what did she mean by that? Or yeah. wait, it's like unfolding. So even though you feel like you know her immediately as the chapters go, I think I'm on chapter seven or eight, as the chapters go on, I'm like, wait, what did she mean by that? <laughs> or what's going on with her too? And then you, you think of, so the premises, and we'll just, I'll just share you know, no more that, than what is on, like in the book, is that um, she's a mail order bride coming from New York to San Francisco to marry a widower. They, you know, marry immediately and she's there to care for her, his five-year-old daughter, um, Kat, um, which my daughter, my, my daughter-in-law is Kat. It was just oh. so fun. But um, so immediately you think, oh, my goodness, this is perfect. Like she's found the perfect situation and how lucky she is. And then the more you read, you're like, wait, something's off. And then pretty soon she starts saying, wait, something's going on here. Um, and so I think but I think immediately she's such a heartwarming character. So you just fall in love with Sophie immediately, like within the first couple of pages. So you're just rooting from her from, I am rooting for her from the beginning and then when Kat comes into the picture then you're like wait what's going on so I would say I'm glad your editor did that twice because yes. now yes. I'm totally invested in these characters uh, it was so funny because I just a couple days ago I'm like oh I want to at least read some of it and you know here again um, I mean I have a busy life I'm homeschooling I'm doing all this stuff I'm like wait wait I just need to just need a little bit more let me read a little bit more <laughs> So, Aww, yeah, nice thanks. Yeah. So, so I always I always love a, a wonderful novel and um, you always give them. So that's awesome. Um, I did want to say like so many people um, turn to fiction for escape and we think, OK, yes, you know, picking this up. I'm like, oh, good. I don't know much about the um, earthquake in San Francisco. So we, we do educate ourselves. We do want that escape. But I find so many times there's this truth that comes in. And I mean, that's really a good novel. Like the theme is this deeper sense of either friendship or compassion or longing or sacrifice that you walk away with in the end of the book. And I would just love to hear as you're writing the novels, I mean, are those things that are there immediately or do those themes evolve as you're in the process of writing the book? 
I think it's kind of a combination of both, actually, because when I first start out to write a book, I'm, I'm kind of an outliner by nature. I don't know everything that's going to happen, but I have like a general idea. And so I like to tell people that I outline by the seat of my pants because it does tend to the outline that I'm thinking of will evolve too as I'm writing. And I, I think I started out to show with Sophie using this backdrop of this earthquake that, um, and the title kind of bears this out that, you know, you know, the nature of something fragile is if you drop it, it will break. Mm -hmm. a, a fragile thing is not strong. A fragile thing can't bear up against tension and, and oppression. It will shatter. But not everything that looks fragile actually is. Mm -hmm. and, and women at the, at the turn of the century were, were seen as fragile creatures with not a lot of agency. You couldn't even own your own bank account. So there are a lot of things that made women seem fragile but I don't think they ever really were. And I think that was just kind of a misconception brought on by the culture that women were fragile creatures because all throughout history, they've done some amazing things. And even with this particular situation with Sophie, you know, she does marry this man, Miller to Bride style, because she wanted out of New York for a lot of reasons, not all of which she shares with the reader at first. Um, and she, and at first, everything seems like it's okay, right? It, it, things things seem okay, but it seems things perfect. aren't perfect. I mean, they seem like wonderful, yeah. Yeah, but she but she can tell from the get go that he's a little different. This man, yeah, she's yeah. married, you know, he's not mean or abusive, but there's something up with him and something yeah. off. And then she dismisses it because she has everything else. So we'll just all those misgivings. I will set those aside because I have everything else I want. And she can't have children. She knows she can't. And so to have this little girl to love when she thought she would be nobody's mother, um, it's enough until it's until, you know, the Don't world give it away. Don't give it away. <laughs> yeah, I mean, everything starts to crumble yeah. around her. Not literally just, crumble, like, literally crumble. But yeah. Literally. And so, yeah, she can't, she can't ignore it any longer. And she, and she's now, I can't say why, but now she's on a quest to protect what she loves and, and the stakes are pretty high. And um, so, you know, thematically, I was thinking, well, I'm going to I'm going to probably show how we don't know how much strength and resolve you have mm -hmm. until you have to act. And then you realize I had it all along, you know, I and I didn't know. And and and, and the idea that um, people aren't as fragile, especially women aren't as fragile as they seem. So those were thematically things I was working with. But others came to the surface as I was writing this, you know, this idea of um you know, female solidarity, like she meets other people along the way that are going to um, help her and support her. And she's going to do the same for them. So this, this idea that we, we do need each other, um, that right. was important to me. And, um, and this idea that um, we can recover from substantial loss. Mm -hmm. um, and, and even that um, takes determination and support from other people, but it's possible. It's doable. And, and sometimes when you come out of a hard time, you know, you find that you're a better version of yourself. And, um, and that's one good thing about a hard time is that it often strengthens you in ways that you wouldn't, you wouldn't have gained uh, any other way. Yeah, that's so good. And I always, um, when I'm sitting down with interviews, I always want to think about the, you know, the books and the, the people, but I always come up with um, a verse to go along with it, to go along and and kind of wrap my mind around what I want to share when I'm doing an interview. And what came to me was Second um, Corinthians 4, 7. Now we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this surpassing great power is from God and not for us. 
And just like you were talking about that jar of clay, which is us is a fragile thing, Mm -hmm. but when it's cracked, like God, like there's God and there's the power of God that is there within us. And so I think um, even as I'm reading, I can see again, the balance of being fragile and being strong and it's Mm -hmm. all there and it's all together. Um, So I, I love that image. Thanks. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. It was, this one was um, a fun one to write because there is a mystery thread in it, mm-hmm. which I'm not a mystery writer per se. I've written a, a couple in my distant past and I, and I enjoyed it, but I don't know if I'm very good at like writing your, your basic mystery, but this one, it, it seemed to emerge this, I, this mystery thread seemed to emerge and I, and I really liked it. And I'm glad to hear it from people who have read the entire book that they um they they bought into it and they felt like it was it wasn't contrived at all you know it felt like it, it worked which is very very satisfying when you attempt to do <laughs> yes. it not really like you know I, I didn't I didn't know if I would be able to you know to pull it off believably but that that part of writing this book with a, with a mystery part was very satisfying to me yeah that's so wonderful and I saw that I try not to read too much of the reviews because I know, you know some of them know. give stuff away too much. I'm like, but I'm like, I did see that people say they did love the mystery element to it, which is, I, I, I love mysteries. So I love even Agatha Christie and yeah. I love historical fiction. So I think any, I think I'm just going to be satisfied, which I've always been satisfied when I pick up one of your books. So it's not too big of an issue. Um, I do want to talk more about the San Francisco earthquake because I was looking, I mean, this is a good book when I all of a sudden get I'm on Google looking up photos of the earthquake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, right. It is like, you know, you've kind of heard of it, but I haven't, this is the first novel I've read about it and just seeing the photos and the devastation. Mm-hmm. And um, what made you decide that that's what you wanted to have for the backdrop or the setting of this book? Well, there were kind of two reasons, really. One was I've written other books set in other places like, you know, Texas and New York and Europe. And Philadelphia, which which is fine, except I'm, those aren't home to me. Mm-hmm. And but, you know, California is my home, and I I've lived other places, but I was born and raised here. Lived here for 25 years before we moved, and then we came back here um, 13 years ago. So it it feels more like home than any other place I've lived. And I've just never really thought about well, what are the stories that are right here waiting for me to stumble upon? I'm not even looking, and I probably right. should because I'm right here. And yeah. so, you know, just, just thinking about these, this idea, well, what's, what has happened in my neck of the woods that deserves to have a story built around it? And of course, that, that earthquake came to, the mind, came to my mind right away because it's so famous. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I thought, well, maybe, maybe I'll do the earthquake, but I don't really know much about it. So it wasn't until I began to like research it and study it that I realized what a good backdrop it was. Because this whole idea that things aren't as they seem, mm-hmm. which was for Sophie, because things aren't as they seem. He's the man she's married is not who she thinks he is. Right. And that's that's evident from the very beginning. That's not a spoiler. Right. She doesn't right. know why. And so this idea that things aren't as they seem was the same for San Francisco. I have a picture. I don't know if I have it in my little stack here, but I have a picture of San Francisco taken the day before the earthquake. And it's kind of a panoramic of the city. And you would never know that um, here it is. This is San Francisco the day before the earthquake. Everything looks fine, right? Beautiful and fine, yes. Everything looks fine. Everything is not fine. But they don't know it because things aren't as they seem. You you can't predict an earthquake. Even now, we can't predict an earthquake. 
And so nobody knows that the next day, the city is going to be pretty much leveled. It's going to look like this. In three days, it's going to look like this. And um, nothing, just complete. I mean, complete. You go from streets and buildings and neighborhoods to nothing. It's it's a city swept away. Mm -hmm. And so that idea then that things aren't as they seem, I thought, well, I, I can use that for all kinds of things. So I had the I had the setting first, the backdrop first, and then there was a matter of, well, what characters am I going to put put into this setting where things are one way one day and then very different the next? Because mm-hmm. I could put any number of characters into that situation. I picked the wrong picked the wrong ones on that first try. They weren't the right people for it. And then the second try, I just tried to cram too many people into the into the story as point of view characters. And with the third try, when I realized this is Sophie's story to tell, that's when I finally, finally, I finally figured out what the book was about. And, um, and then I was able to start researching and writing. So I'll, I'll probably hang out in California just for a little while, because I feel like I've just scratched the surface really of stories that are waiting to be told out here in the West. Absolutely. So, you know, we'll see, but that, that's why I picked um, this one first for, for, for this book anyway, was I felt like it's, it's right here, and I haven't I haven't even looked at it. And then when I did look at it, I thought, oh yeah, I can I can do something with that. Yeah, that's so good, and I love that the part that th- seem things don't seem don't look. Wait, wait, how did you say it? <laughs> things, things aren't like they seem. Things aren't like they seem, which is such mm-hmm. a good thing. And I I think even when I'm reading this, how quickly things change, like with the pandemic. I mean, we are just going along. We're complaining about the line at Starbucks or whatever we're complaining yeah. about. And suddenly the whole world is impacted. So this was San Francisco, um, which it was devastation. But in unseen ways, lives have been devastated in this last year, year, almost a year and a half. Well, yeah, year, I guess, um, in ways we never imagined. Like we were talking about before, it's often the things that we think are sturdy, we find Mm -hmm. out are fragile and the things that we think are fragile, we find this reserve in us. And I just put, um, in my Facebook, I put, um, what impacted you most the last year? And I was thinking it was going to be a lot of negative and this was really hard. People were like, I started a new job. I decided Mm -hmm. to get my health back and, you know, get my health back. We bought a house, we moved to a new state. And I think it was a time when our lives were shaken up, we really said, okay, we've been just going along and doing this thing. What can we do differently? Because we have the opportunity to do differently now. Um, so I would just love just your input on how you've seen, I mean, you didn't know the pandemic was coming when you were writing about writing the story, but I think it applies so much to what everyone is going through now. an easier way to share the love of Jesus with friends and family? The simple answer is yes. Dave and John Ferguson, brothers, pastors, and authors, have found five simple, straightforward practices that will allow any believer to do just that. They share these in Bless. Five everyday ways to love your neighbor and change the world. Bless is available now wherever books are sold. Yeah, I think this um, this pandemic has definitely forced us to slow down mm-hmm. and c- 
kind of like take stock because, you know, we're not, we're not able to zoom around doing, we're, we're zooming, but you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> doing whatever you want going here and going there and taking the kids to all these extracurriculars. And, you know, um, we were, we were at, a, we were, I think we were operating at a pace that wasn't sustainable. Right. Really. And so, you know, we were knocked back um, into this, um, it's, it's almost like being knocked into seclusion at least in California, we haven't been able really to do hardly anything. We were opened up now, but it was it was hard for a while where it seemed like nothing nothing was open. And so you were forced to be quiet with yourself, which we're not, we don't do that much anymore. I mean, prior to COVID, um, we did not spend a lot of time in self-reflection. You know, people couldn't even wait in line alone with their thoughts. They had to pull their phones out of their pocket to entertain exactly. them while they're yeah. meeting. And so I think this whole experience, if I have to find any kind of silver lining in it, is that it's 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 tutoring us on how to um, to cycle back into um, uh, activities that really matter and not to spread ourselves so thin that we don't even know who we are and that it, relationships are everything. You know, we we took we took for granted our relationships before mm-hmm. because we thought we could operate on any level we wanted. Well, okay, well now we can't. And right. we're having to find ways to stay connected and realizing that, um, oh gosh, relationships really do matter. And and I know that the first time I sit down in a restaurant and the waiter brings me a plate of food, I'm probably going to stand up and hug him. <laughs> <laughs> you can't hug him. You can't hug him. <laughs> okay, more hugs. More hugs. Okay, maybe I'm super good at my five. You know, there you go. I have, yeah. <laughs> I have not sat down in a restaurant indoors in a, in, in a year. Mm. You know, we, we can eat outdoors here, but, you know, not 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 the way we were used to. And so I think certain things that we took for granted yeah, absolutely. relationships, I think um, they're going to have renewed, renewed meaning, which that's, that's a good thing, I think. And, and this idea that we've, we've learned what really matters to us. Mm-hmm. And that too is not such a bad lesson to learn when you are stripped of a lot of freedom and liberties and you're really just... <laughs> you're like, you're scraped down to just like the bare essentials. Well, then you realize, well, what is essential to me? And what do I really need? And it's, you know, it's our relationships with, um, well, with, uh, with people and even like, even our, our churches, you know, it's like all those months we couldn't go and we're watching on, on my computer. And I felt like, I felt like a, a disconnect and, and so now we're realizing how important it is, you know, to maintain those, those physical relationships because they they galvanize us, I think, in a, in a certain kind of way that distance can't. Absolutely. And I think that's slowing down. Um, and I am, you know, I speak at homeschool conferences. I speak lots of places where I'm the one saying, don't add too much activities. You know, really, we always try to have dinner together. So I am been preaching that forever. But I mean, we went from limited to nothing. And we have six kids still at home. So from eight, you know, from 18 now to 10. And so, you know, we only did one activity a year per child, but that was still like, everything stopped. And yeah. uh, then the kids are like, what do we do? And in the first like week, we're like, I, I don't know, what are we supposed to do? But then we, I taught them how to make bread. I taught my girls, we sewed aprons. I taught them how to embroider, which I had learned when I was little, like all these things that, <clears throat> excuse me, that I probably wouldn't have taken the time to do with them. Um, I have them help me cook more because before I'd be like, we're, I'm throwing stuff together because we got to run over to baseball practice. And now I'm like, well, we're going to pull out this recipe and we're going to make this. This takes way longer. Yeah, we have lots of time to do it. I started watercolor painting, which I growing up loved to draw. 
Um, but I had never taken the time all these years, like someday, you know, when the kids are out of the house, I'll take a painting class. Now I'm like, well, let me just order some stuff and just play around and watch YouTube videos. So I think it has been good in so many ways. I think even for our kids to Mm -hmm. do some of those things that I never would have taken the time to show Mm -hmm. them how to sew. I have, I've had the sewing machine in my closet for five years that I haven't pulled out once. And then Mm -hmm. now it's like, okay, I'm going to pull it out and we're going to do these things. So, and I think going back to your story, when our foundations are shaken, we do start to see this is what matters. Like family matters. My, my son, um, you know, his, uh, wife has a lot of health problems. And so we've had to be super careful. We haven't had a lot of have a lot of family gatherings, but when they come over, you know, we're like making sure everyone's healthy. But then like when they're actually here, it's just like the best time. I'm like, I'm so thankful you're here. I'm making all this food, but it's like, it really makes you cherish the people in your lives and, and yeah. um, understand, like you said, what really matters, our faith and our friends and our family. And I think it's been hard getting shaken up, but I think it's been good. And I, mm-hmm. I know, um, I mean, so much as I know, can, I cannot wait to get more into the book. As soon as we're off, I'm going to be reading another chapter, but I think it's going to be, um, I think this journey is one, even as we're going through the characters that, that we're all going to be able to relate in our own lives in a different way, but the emotions are the same. You know, some of the internal struggles are the same. Um, so I appreciate that. And that's what I love about fiction. We, get to process what we're going through, mm-hmm. even through the lives of our characters. Yeah, I think that's what I what appeals to me the most. And, and it's probably the reason why I write historical fiction. And that's why I stay in that lane is because when you look back in history, mm-hmm. you can see what it is about us as humans that um, stays the same. And there's a lot that changes, of course, but there are certain things about us that does, it, it doesn't change. Like we you know, love is important to us and justice and affirmation and all, you know, all the, all those timeless things that you see, you know, generation to generation, decade to decade, century to century. And then when you write about it in the past and bring those stories from the past into a contemporary reading, it's like being able to visit the past mm-hmm. without having to travel, like physically tra- time traveling um, books can, can take you there and really only fiction can take you there where you feel like you're in it. You know, a good history book can <clears throat> tell you what happened, but historical fiction is what allows you to like live it, like, like yeah. to experience it as if you were the character. Absolutely. And I feel, um, I mean, just even, you know, Sophie's an immigrant coming from Ireland and what she faces and just how people look at her differently. And, and mm-hmm. we often don't realize like how hard things were. And it's made me think of, cause I have um, my on my grandfather's side, we have immigrants from Ireland, and I'm like, wow, I want to research. I'm going to go get in my ancestry and look up those people and yeah. read up more about them because I think we do take for granted how, mm-hmm. like, we're all here and we all, you know, speak the same language, and you know, I don't know. It, I think it yeah. is it helps us to reflect. Yes, okay, so definitely. some some questions I always um, ask because readers will want to know this: um, Are you working on another novel? <laughs> I am. I am. I'm writing, um, it's the first draft. And so it seems kind of gauzy still, like it's not all cemented. Although I think, I think I've got a better start on this one than I did. with <laughs> Agile things. I'm feeling, I'm feeling pretty good about it, but it, it takes place in California. Like I said, I'm kind of looking mm-hmm. for stories that happened, that happened like right here, which is also good because we can't travel anywhere Right. that um, I'm kind of sticking close to my home state. 
But um, there was a movement in the early part of the 20th century, the last part of the 19th century. It was called the eugenics movement. And you don't hear much about it now, which is a good thing. It was a terrible idea. But there was this ideology that if we just had healthier, smarter children, then mm. society would be better. Like everything about society would be better because they'd be healthier. They'd be able to um, to provide more to the society by having uh -huh. occupations and jobs that would better the society. Everything about society would be better if we had healthy, wise, smart children. But to make that happen, to execute that idea is to prevent people who don't measure up from having children. Mm -hmm. And then well, wow. who decides? Who decides who's a, a decent, good person and who's not? And so you get into a very sticky situation of um, people placing value on other people, and they're in no position to do that. Right. And at its worst, that idea is what happened in Nazi Germany, you know, 30 years later. I was just later. thinking that. I was watching a documentary yes. with my kids. It's um, Anne, Par Anne Frank Parallel Stories. Because yes. my kids are like, why did they do that? It's, I have a hard time as a mom. I've written historical novels like explaining why. And this one of the historians in this documentary said today, um, the Nazis were the pure race. And to be the pure race, they need to get rid of anyone they seemed impure. Which I'm like, okay, I've been explaining all this other stuff. And I'm like, that was summed up, which is exactly what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. And it's kind of sad that really that whole idea of eugenics just means good genes, mm -hmm. only good genes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, who decides what the good genes are? And, you know, in Nazi Germany, it was, well, it was, you know, Aryan. If you're Aryan, you're good to go. If you're not, you're not. And so, you know, here in, in, in California where that whole movement kind of began, in fact, Hitler read a lot of eugenicist works that were written here in California. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know, it, it began here with saying, oh, you have to, it's, it's your IQ. It's, you know, um, whether or not you're, you've led a life of crime. And even for women, if they were promiscuous, um, they were seen as inferior and feeble-minded. So definitely if, you know, if you're living a life where you're running around um, in and out of other people's bedrooms, that is no way to live. But um, there are ways to help that person out of that lifestyle. And it doesn't mean that if that person has a child, that she's going to pass on somehow that promiscuity to her offspring. So they had all of these um, wild ideas about who could have kids. Like they would sterilize an epileptic, an mm -hmm. epileptic and, or they would sterilize somebody who was dyslexic because they didn't understand the disability because they only wanted perfect people. <laughs> it's just right. It was an idea that couldn't, it could not be executed well. And so the story that I'm writing is about three women impacted by that movement. And so um, it's you know, three generations of women impacted by that movement. So, and I'm, I'm writing a story that I hope is, um, you know, I can't change the past. A lot of people right. were, harmed, were a lot of, yeah, a lot were harmed by this movement, but I just want to imagine um, a, a family or a series of people where um, I'm able to create some happiness out of it. And so that's my goal is to somehow, and I think I, think I found a way to um, have, to be true to history, but also out of it, um, make something happy happen to this, to this family impacted by that movement. Yeah, and I think that's important. I mean, I've been doing a lot of research and virtual tours in Europe, which is so fun, but they always, like, I always love to hear the stories of 
those who had faith or who rescued the Jews or who did these, mm. we could always find the people that are doing good, being kind, standing up to evil. Um, and I think those are the stories, like even when there's all this hard stuff, we look for the light. And like, I think that's what you're yeah. saying. Like we got to yes. find the light and hard stuff happens, but there is yes. light and there is hope and God can show up in completely unexpected ways. I did right. a, a true story of a man who um, was on a kinder transport. So he's put on a train in Czechoslovakia and I'm taken to Scotland and he lived there during the war then found out afterwards his whole family had been killed. But he, um, I wrote his true story. He's the most, and he passed away not, not too long ago, but um, so I'm so glad I got to write his story. But he talks about um, the people that helped him and the women that raised him and those who took him to church and Sunday school. And he became a missionary and, mm. you know, he has, um, you know, he has children in Colorado that live in Colorado. And he's like, I can see God's hand, even though there's all the hard things I could see God's hand on my life. And, you know, oh. just how he brought these people into my life. And so even during the hard stuff, you're saying even during the hard stuff, there is hope and there's light and there's mm -hmm. goodness in people there's that we can mm -hmm. look for. And I, I love that, yeah. you know, yes. you're not taking you're not tackling easy subjects, but I think it's I important, know, important subjects. <laughs> I just, I think what happens is I come across a historical event like mm -hmm. this one, and I don't want anyone to forget the lessons we learned yeah. from that movement. Because if, you know, like they say, if you, if you don't remember history, you're, you're going to repeat it. And this is a mistake that ought not to be repeated. So in, in some ways, when I come across an event that I'm going to write about, when I know it's a hard one, I'm thinking to myself, well, this is one way of, of not forgetting Absolutely. you know, that part of our history, because we really should remember it so that we don't repeat it. Yeah, I'm fascinated now. I cannot wait. Oh, my God, no, I'm going to have to wait because you're still writing it. <laughs> yeah, I've got a little bit of work to do on that one. <laughs> a little bit of work. I know. People always like it's so funny when I hear someone say, like, I read your book in four hours. I'm like, when's the next one? <laughs> that, that, and it was the next one. I'm like, well, you're going to have to wait. Well. <laughs> oh, I love that. Uh, Thank you so much, Susan, for being here. And for, again, the book is The Nature of Fragile Things. And the cover is beautiful. The, I mean, everything about it. The story is amazing, like I said. And I will say it starts off not immediately with Sophie. Uh, it starts off with an interview conducted by a U.S. Marshal. So that, yeah. I think that's where the mystery, like immediately you're like, wait a minute, what, what is what's going on? So. Yeah, I knew I could begin the book in any number of ways. And with this one, I begin the first few bits are Sophie in mm -hmm. a police interview because her husband is missing and yeah. it's a transcript. And so you begin the story seven months after the quake, knowing that um, her husband's missing. And then we, we vault back in time to her arriving in San Francisco on a ferry. But you know, the reader knows that um, seven months after that quake, no one knows where he is. So yeah. it's, that's to whet your appetite so, a little bit. Oh, absolutely. It's like, wait, what's going on? <laughs> well, good job. Thanks. Well, thank you thank for you. being here. And um, again, thank you for writing another amazing book that we can all thank enjoy. You. And why don't you just share like where people can go for more information about you and all your books? Sure. Well, I, my website is always a place where you can find out where I'm going to be. There's lots of virtual events still to come. So that's just SusanMeisner.com and also SusanLMeisner.com. Both of those URLs will take you to my website. And I'm on Facebook, Susan Meisner, and Instagram. 
I couldn't get Susan Meisner because someone already took it. So I, <laughs> I, I'm Suz Meisner on Instagram. So it's S-O-O-Z, which is my nickname. Suze yep. Meisner is my Instagram handle. And I'm on Twitter as Susan Meisner. So all of those places are places where you can find me. And I'm on Clubhouse now. I do a little book talk every Thursday at 10 Pacific with some other writer friends of mine. So if you're on um, the Clubhouse app, I am on there too. And uh, my handle there is Susan Meisner. Awesome. So I have an Android phone. I'm like totally feeling left out of this clubhouse. You know, I think in in time, I think it's going to be, it'll be for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Right now it is only for Apple, but I bet you in time that will change. I think so. Well, thank you friends so much for being here. This was fun. It was so good to see you again. It's almost like being with you in person. Almost. I know. We're going to have to make that happen (laughs) soon. Yes. Yes. Bye. Okay, if you haven't read a novel by Susan Meisner, I'm telling you, she's a really good author. And I am really enjoying The Nature of Fragile Things, which we talked about today. But I also love some of her other books. The Shape of Mercy is wonderful. And then The Secret of a Charmed Life, I mentioned uh, in the interview that I finished that earlier this year. It's set in World War II. It is so good. I'm telling you, I love that book. And that's what I love about fiction. And like Susan was sharing, you can take these historical events that we read about and there's statistics and there's facts and this happened and that happened. But to really get into the minds and hearts of what people might have experienced and um, how even those experiences can relate to us in our everyday lives is a beauty of fiction. When we can come around um, and put down a book and have new insights, new thoughts, new encouragement, new hope for our own lives, that's a beautiful thing. Um, and I mentioned also today's walking out verse is 2 Corinthians 4, 7. Now we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this surpassing great power is from God and not from us. And when I was thinking about the walk it out verse and talking to Susan, that image of fragile things and jars of clays is us. We are created by God. We are fragile in so many ways, but we also have so much potential. It's often when we have trouble, when our lives are shaken, when our foundation is stripped away, that's when we discover, like the scripture verse says, that surpassingly great power is from God. I think so many times we try to be strong and we try to keep going and we try to make all these right decisions. And when hard things still come, because hard things will always still come, we can't perfectly control our comfort and our lives. When hard things come, it is then we can discover God's strength in us. In our weakness, his strength is complete. I love that verse too. But we have these this treasure in jars of clay to show that this surpassing great power is from God and not from us. So let me pray for all of us today. Dear Heavenly Father, I am so thankful for Susan. I am so thankful that you've given her the gift of story and that her novels can go out and without preaching, without pounding a Bible over someone's head, that truth can just be told. And that's what we need is we need truth. We need hope. We need to to be reminded of what's really important in our lives, even when things are shaken. I pray that you'll 
be with Susan. Bless her. Bless her on the book she's writing. I pray this book will get in many hands and um, that you will just continue to grow her audience in amazing ways. And Lord, for every single person, which I think is pretty much all of us right now, whose last year has been shaken, has felt fragile, has felt broken, I pray that each one of us will discover your unsurpassing great power um, that we hadn't even imagined that was there before, that when we see our cracks and our brokenness and how shaky things are, we can look to you and find hope and encouragement and joy for whatever is coming ahead. Lord, I pray for each person who maybe even today has been shaken in their lives. Maybe it's bad news. Maybe it is disappointing um, outcomes. Lord, I pray that you will be with each person and wrap your arms around him or her. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, thank you so much for tuning in. I always love connecting with you. Um, And I have a special request for you. I'm going to be starting to do um, some more answering your questions. And so I love talking to people. I love interviewing people. But I know that there's questions that I just haven't gotten around to answering that I think would bring a lot of encouragement. And if you have something that you would just love to hear me talk about, whether it is um, balancing life and making priorities, um, getting things done in the busyness of life, dealing with difficult kids or family members, any of those things, I would love to hear from you. So just send it to hello at trishagoyer.com. Trisha is T-R-I-C-I-A. Goyer is G-O-Y-E-R.com. Hello at trishagoyer.com. Just send me your question and I will be recording answers for upcoming broadcasts. I do want to be a source of hope and encouragement to you. I want to always point you to God and um, how a relationship with him will change everything. And I hope that I can give you help and advice for whatever you are dealing with today. So again, you can email that to hello at trishagoyer.com. And I hope to hear from you and I hope to connect with you again. Thanks for listening to Walk It Out. Head over to the show notes for this podcast and all past episodes at www.walkitoutpodcast.com. If you love the show, share it with someone you know who can make a radical difference in the world. We love new friends. See you next time.